For a lot of New Yorkers, the city's parks have become sanctuaries, providing a much-needed escape from the confines of their homes during the coronavirus pandemic. But advocates are concerned tough economic times ahead could mean less funding for our urban oases. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, we'll check in with Adam Ganser, executive director of New Yorkers for Parks. I think the immediate term is really being able to retain the budget numbers as they've been over the past few years. However unlikely that is, it's really important. The Parks Department has been historically underfunded. But first, let's check in on the state of the mighty Bronx River. The Bronx River has seen tremendous gains over the years, thanks to strong partnerships between government and community. But can budget cuts in the face of the coronavirus outbreak weaken those gains? I pose that question and a bunch of others to Michelle Lubke, Director of Environmental Stewardship at the Bronx River Alliance. Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here today. So how would you describe the state of the river? We have a number of different community science projects, and those are really opportunities for people from the community to get involved um, and really help steward the Bronx River. And so we do that in a number of different ways. We have one program called Project Waste, and that is an acronym for Waterway and Street Trash Elimination. Um, and so we have the results from, from that. That's cool um, to the have, data, right, Michelle? Yeah, exactly. And then we have another program called Project Water Drop, and that is another acronym that stands for Detecting River Outfalls and Pollutants. And that's really our water quality monitoring program. And so we just recently um, released our, our big results from 2019. We're very excited to share with people. What did the 2019 data tell you? Well, we had a really big year in 2019. Not only did we do um, street trash for the first time, we also have our data from um, partners up in Westchester County who have installed trash booms as well in the river. So, so what we do, just a little bit more information about what Project Waste is, um, we have um, trash booms in the river and they are literally like big floating bananas in like a circle or like a, like a half moon in the river. And as the water flows, it catches all the floating trash. And so then we get people in waders and we go out and we pick every single piece of trash that comes out of that boom and we tally it. Um, because it's a scientific study. And we've been able to document a number of um, different uh, trash coming down. And so then we're able to basically modify our advocacy and our education and our outreach efforts to the communities, depending on what it is that we're seeing. Um, and and, and the biggest thing that happened in 2019 is that we surpassed 200,000 piece of trash removed from the river, which is pretty exciting. Um, and all told, that's about seven tons of, of trash wow. that we have tallied. But we have, we have pulled more than that out of the river. But that is what we have exactly tallied. So we know what that number of items equates to that weight and volume of trash removed. Um, and so the system that we basically have in the river now is that 
we have, there are two trash booms up in Westchester County that our parks at Westchester Parks Foundation run. And then we have our trash boom at the border. And so those three are actually catching the Westchester trash. We've just split it into thirds. Um, because for those who are not familiar with the different types of sewer systems we have, in New York City, there's really two different kinds. There's the combined sewer, and that one gets a lot of, of um, information about it, right? A lot of people have been talking about CSOs or combined sewage overflows. Or that's heavy it, rainfall, right? Exactly, exactly. So the heavy rainfall goes down into the storm sewer, and in a combined system, the storm sewer and then your sanitary, which is your sinks and your toilets and things, all combines into one pipe and goes to the wastewater treatment plant. And then that all gets treated, which is good because stormwater is not clean, right? Water that, that falls on our streets and runs down the drain has trash and has all the roadway debris. And if somebody hasn't picked up after their pet, it has fecal waste, just the same as humans have fecal waste. And so in a combined system, all of that goes to the wastewater treatment plant. Really great idea. The problem is, is that we have so much pavement in New York City that we don't have any ability for this stormwater when it rains to actually go into the ground again. It just runs down into the storm drain. So the more pavement we have, the more stormwater we produce, the more stormwater we produce, the more likely that the wastewater treatment plant is going to get overwhelmed. And so before they get overwhelmed, they have these particular pinch points that they are, are permitted to release from. And that's what a combined sewer overflow is. But in the rest of the city is what is called a separate storm sewer system. And that is sometimes called an MS4. So if you have ever heard that, there's no magic behind that name. It just stands for Municipal Separate Storm Sewer System. So that's where you get the MS4. So that's just a separate system. And so that means that anything that falls on your street, it, we have, whether it's trash or copper from your car's brake pads or detergent or dog waste or anything goes straight down the storm drain and goes directly out to the river. It's not filtered, it's not screened, nothing. So that is what's been going into the Bronx River. So all of Westchester County in the Bronx River watershed and then most of the upper Bronx is all separate storm sewer. The rest of the Bronx is combined sewer. But our combined sewer um, inputs aren't until the estuary part of the river, which is the lower three miles or so of the river. And the Bronx River is 23 miles long. Mm -hmm. So 18 of those miles are in Westchester County. So, mm -hmm. so that's just to give you a little uh, uh, overview of what the watershed looks like. So now when we're looking at the results and we're talking about that, it's a little bit more understandable why we're seeing what it is we're seeing. So when we're looking at that trash and why we're so interested in Westchester County's trash, is because that trash is not getting filtered or screened or anything before it from when it goes on your street to into the Bronx River. Now in the city, even though we have most areas are combined, in our MS4 areas in the city, 
There are things called floatable caps and different catchment basins that allows the trash that washes into the storm drains to actually fall to the bottom and then it can be cleaned out. But that's not the case in Westchester County. There aren't catchment basins and there aren't really even grates because of unwillingness or, um, or unknowingness um, and so what we're seeing is massive, massive amounts of trash getting into the Bronx River in Westchester County. And most of that is styrofoam. It's, um, so we're talking about your cups and things like that, styrofoam cups. That your styrofoam cups, your Dunkin' Donuts, your styrofoam takeaway containers, all of that. Over 60% is, um, is styrofoam. And, um, and then the rest of that is basically plastic. Um, so, and then the only other honorable mention is cigarette butts. Mm -hmm. And that's what really came up on our street trash surveys is that if you ask somebody, um, uh, most people, you know, would you litter? Most people would say, no, I would never litter. But if you say, would you drop a cigarette butt on the ground? Well, sure, I'd do that if I were, a, you know, if I smoked. Yeah, yeah. Because somehow a, a cigarette butt has stopped being equated to litter. Although from the perspective of a riverine animal, um, a cigarette butt is quite possibly the worst thing because of all the chemicals in the filter <laughs> and the fact that the filter breaks down and... Um, and it starts looking more and more like food in the water. And so cigarette butts are something that we found very much in, um, on our street trash surveys and then always find in the river. There are potential budget cuts that will come as a result of the coronavirus outbreak. Is there concern that budget cuts could potentially undo or at least impact the work that you're doing to keep the river clean? Oh, absolutely, which is why we're talking about ways that we can get volunteers to come out to our parks. Um, budget cuts have really slashed parks budgets. Um, so personnel uh, hiring is very down for the season. Um, we're not sure what level of seasonals we'll be able to get, which um, for our program, we have uh, conservation crew apprentices. And so those are the ones who actually go out and do all of our restoration work. So our invasive species removal and our native tree plantings and all of our um, rain garden, uh, green, infrastructure, uh, green infrastructure installations that we do, which is how we help manage excess stormwater by giving it a place to actually go and infiltrate. And we actually build these rain gardens using pollinator plants so that we can help support habitat for our very critical pollinator species as well as mobilize or you know uh, retain a lot of stormwater, um, and so our apprenticeship program is is really predicated on having so, having seasonals, um, and parks hiring is down. Our normal activities very um, being impacted, and not just because people aren't able to come out with us in big groups, because we are trying to address how to do that. Because we've been under lockdown now for a while, do you anticipate that there will naturally be less litter in the river because fewer people are out tossing trash onto the street? Is that at least maybe one bright side here? 
I wish that were the case, but what we're actually seeing is people being negligent with their, with their PPEs. Mm. And so we're seeing more gloves and more masks on the ground, in the streets, in the storm drains, in the, uh, in the parks. Um, we haven't seen it in the river as much, but we also don't have our trash boom in right now because we don't have anybody to manage it. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the downstream impacts of, um, of us not having our booms in and not doing our normal work to see if that has a bigger impact um, in that last downstream boom that the city maintains. But as you said, and as we've been saying throughout this pandemic, we're all in this together. We all need to do our part. Staying home was part of that. Helping to clean up the river is another part of that, right? Exactly, exactly. Michelle, what's the website for people to find out more information? Uh, BronxRiver.org. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Michelle Lupke is Director of Environmental Stewardship at the Bronx River Alliance. At a time when New Yorkers are turning to parks in droves for fresh air, exercise, and solace amidst the coronavirus pandemic, another organization that's deeply concerned about funding cuts is New Yorkers for Parks. The group's been working to protect and promote open space across the city for more than 100 years. I recently talked with New Yorkers for Parks Executive Director Adam Ganser. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm happy to do it. So let's begin with a little background about New Yorkers for Parks. What's the mission of the organization? Uh, New Yorkers for Parks is the only independent not-for-profit advocacy group focusing on parks and open space. And our mission is to ensure that all New Yorkers have access to high quality, safe, and beautiful parks and open space in New York City. Uh, we do this through uh, our extensive research, research and partnerships with communities, elected officials, and government agencies here in New York City. This is an organization with quite a rich history, a long history in New York City, right? That's right. We've been around for over 100 years in some different iterations. And um, this last couple of years, we've really made a big push with our advocacy piece around um, an initiative called Playfair. Tell us about Playfair. Playfair is a campaign that we started, New Yorkers for Parks, along with the New York League of Conservation Voters and DC 37. That's the union that represents parks employees. Uh, and it is a coalition of more than 280 other parks associations and groups uh, that is pushing really for additional funding for the Parks Department, primarily focused on job creation and retention. Um, that's anything from maintenance to park enforcement to gardeners, et cetera. Well, last year, we were successful in a $44 million uh, campaign that was added to the Parks Department budget. And this year we're pushing for $47 million with the same focus. Last year we were doing that uh, pre-COVID. Uh, this year with the unbelievable uh, conditions we're finding ourselves here in New York City and the importance that parks are playing in, in really public health and, and wellness and frankly sanity, uh, we're just seeing a, a usage that is through the roof and makes our, our commitment to this campaign even more important. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. What can you tell me about the importance of parks, especially in a city like New York, where a lot of people don't have their own backyard? The parks are their backyard, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, we're, we've been cooped up for a good reason for many months here. And um, as the summer has come and the warm weather has come, we've seen people flocking to their larger parks and open spaces. Uh, and so we're, we're really looking to the future of the summer to, to try to open up as many of these spaces as possible. It's going to be critical to, to life in New York City. 
What are among your biggest concerns for parks in a city that is economically strained right now due to COVID-19? I think the immediate term is really being able to retain uh, the, the budget numbers as they've been over the past few years. However unlikely that is, it's really important. The Parks Department has been historically underfunded. We pale in comparison to spending uh, in other cities across the country. So being able to retain parks employees and retain the maintenance uh, capability of the Parks Department on our parks throughout the five boroughs is essential. And then coming out of this summer, uh, you know, we're not sure what's going to be happening in the fall, for that matter, a year from now. So we need to be investing in uh, management strategies that allow us to open more spaces and looking longer term creation of uh, additional spaces. I read an article recently that quoted an associate professor of urban ecology at the New School who said parks should be considered critical infrastructure because not only do they provide a respite for New Yorkers who want to escape their cramped dwellings, but they also help to pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because of the trees and the plants and they help to lower temperatures. Basically, they help to fight climate change, right? So why do you think they're not considered critical infrastructure like internet services and other services that do get more funding? It's a really good question. I think it is a historic question. At every level, when there is a pinch, the first things to get cut tend to be uh, social services and parks, and the things that don't get cut are the police and military. Um, this has been true at the federal level. It's true at the city level. I do think that there is a changing narrative around parks, and rather than being isolated within the parky world, there are all sorts of conversations about how parks are critical infrastructure, not in and of themselves alone, but as they get overlapped with other policy initiatives, whether that be uh, sustainability, whether it be affordable housing, economic development, all of those uh, topics and policy initiatives actually include parks as part of the, 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 the discourse and need to continue to do that. They can't be considered in isolation. What about funding for organizations like yours and other park advocacy groups? What's the revenue outlook for you all? I, you know, all not-for-profit organizations and advocacy organizations are um, seeing pretty big dips in their revenues this year. Um, I think that's going to be across the board. We have to get creative about how we're going to be raising money for our organization. And I think the, the, there's all sorts of industries that are suffering and, um, Many of them are suffering because there just isn't work. I think the difference for us is that there's more work and the work is more important than ever. And so that message just needs to get out there. And I think uh, you know, people will see the importance of what we're doing and, and, and we'll be okay. Which parks are you most concerned about? That's such a good question. I can't come up with specific parks. Again, we've, we've got a historically underfunded parks department. We've got um, many years now where we've really spent uh, very little in comparison to previous administrations on new parks and capital projects. The previous administration spent more than $6 billion on parks. We're looking at deferred maintenance costs over 10 years at, at close to $6 billion. We are going to be going into a recovery mode at some point in the future. And parks and park building and park maintenance, and I'm talking capital maintenance, has to be a part of that plan. And it can't be considered again in isolation. It has to be part of a discussion around overall equity in the city, uh, development, affordable housing, infrastructure, they all need to be part of the same conversation. And we need to do this in a way that was different from how we've done it in the past. We've come out of big dips, big recessions previously. 
we've learned about uh, how successfully to do that and some of the things that haven't been so, so successful, specifically speaking about gentrification. We have the tools to fix these problems and this is uh, a, a historic moment for us to be considering all those issues with parks as a big part of that um, solution. Do you think there's a need to consistently set the record straight? Because I think there are, are people out there who see Central Park, they see Prospect Park, and they say parks are doing fine, they're beautiful, yep. they're clean, they're maintained, but yep. these parks have conservancies. The neighborhood parks do not. That's right. Now, if you live, as I do, near Prospect Park and you weren't, you didn't have your head in this issue, you'd think, wow, this is an amazing park. How, how does the Parks Department do it? Same thing in Central Park or, or with the Highland for that mm -hmm. matter. A lot of people do not know that there are these not-for-profit conservancies that are privately raising money to support those parks. Um, if you go into the outer boroughs, you don't see a lot of that same situation. And it, it really is incumbent upon the city to fund the maintenance of these parks. Uh, it's important for the, that those maintenance costs to be baselined so that we're not going back year after year trying to get the appropriate funding for these parks. Uh, I think it's important. It's, these are great partnerships. I want to say that off, off the top. Central Park Conservancy, Prospect Park Alliance, all the other conservancies are amazing partners for the city of New York, but they don't represent the state of the Parks Department and the parks in the rest of the boroughs, and, and people need to know that. What neighborhoods of New York City have some of the best parks, and which have some of the worst, would you say? Well, the neighborhoods that are around uh, Prospect Park, you know, there's uh, parks up in the Bronx that are, are, are quite large and servicing their residents. I think there are big, big um, big, big areas in the South Bronx and North Central Queens that do not have access to large parks. Um, Central Brooklyn, you know, Borough Park, Midwood, that area, North Shore of Staten Island. You look at a map and you can see where the large green spaces are and where they're not. A lot of those neighborhoods that do not have big parks are relying on small pocket parks and playgrounds, as I mentioned before. And right now, you really do want to be in large open spaces, be able to create social distancing situation. Uh, and so that's just not possible for a lot of people. What would you say have been the biggest gains for city parks over the last several years? The success we had last year in, in increasing the budget by 44 million is, uh, is a, a game changer. And it's something that we're building off of. I think you've seen over the last 10 years, some really creative thinking about developing new parks, certainly along the waterfronts. I put the High Line in, in that uh, category as well, um, and, and out on the, on the coast. I think the, the reality is in a city like New York, which is unbelievably dense, land is incredibly valuable, uh, coming up with a location to build a large new park is difficult. So you're really looking at trying to come up with creative solutions around the margins to figure out how to provide these spaces to people. And that's the type of thinking I think we need to be focusing on moving forward. Where are the big development opportunities? Where we, can we be creating opportunities for affordable housing and parks at the same time? Where are the greenways that are taking less space, providing more, more open space and access uh, to people in these areas that are underserved by parks? Is that something that your organization works to do to help to identify these locations? It's something we are going to do for sure. And um, you know, there are a lot of people who think about this. But it's, uh, we have focused primarily on the maintenance, but not, be, not because there isn't a need to focus on um, park development, but just because there's such a critical need to make sure that voices are talking about the maintenance because that, those are the hardest dollars to get year after year. So we will continue to talk about that. But as I said before, 
any recovery coming out of this situation is going to include park building and our voice is going to be critical to that. How has your organization pivoted in the face of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, from a messaging standpoint, I think we've stayed on target. You know, we're, our, our message around parks funding this year, last year, and then the future is, is as timely as it's ever been. Uh, from a more logistical operation standpoint, um, you know, I've been here for four weeks. So I joined and nobody was going into an office. So I've met everybody on staff, but I've not met anybody in person. So wow, you I, stepped into your role just four weeks ago? That's right, that's right. Uh, so that has been a, 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 an interesting introduction into the organization. I will say everybody, both at the board and staff level, has just been incredible and, and welcoming me. And so it, it, that's, been, that's been great. What's your background? Where did you come from? I came from the Highline. I had been at the Highline for 10 years. Uh, I was the vice president of planning and design. I primarily focused on the development of the park uh, around the Hudson Yards and then focused a bit on something called the Highline Network, uh, which is a peer-to-peer -peer group of infrastructure projects around the United States, all with similar um, infrastructure use focus uh, as the high line and a real focus on equity and affordable housing, et cetera. So when you look at the high line, how much inspiration do you glean from that project? Because that project took a while to get off the ground, but wow, did it get off the ground, right? I would imagine there's a lot to learn there about the development of a park like that, looking towards the future of open spaces. Yeah, I think the, 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 the piece that I take away from it uh, the most is, is that it was a creative idea from community members that really pulled together to see a vision through. And I think this goes back to my comment earlier, there was a lot of lessons learned around the High Line as well. That, that park exists through the complete rezoning of West Chelsea in, in New York City. And along with that, uh, you know, there's increased height, increased bulk, all sorts of new buildings that have popped up around there and, and a fair amount of, of affordable housing as well we can learn from what happened with the Highline and value that the Highline created for the city of New York and leverage some of that value to make sure that parks themselves are getting directly some of that, some of that revenue and to encourage more affordable housing to be built as part of these parks projects. So I think it's, it is a, a beacon in a lot of ways and the work that they're doing now around the Highline network is essential to these conversations. Off the top of your head, I know this might be challenging to answer off the top of your head, but are there areas of New York City that are prime for park development? I think that there are, yes, there's a whole host of projects that have been sort of in the parks department uh, kind of floating around as ideas. I think along the, the water um, in the Bronx, there's opportunities for additional parks. There's projects like the Queensway, which is similar to the High Line, but not exactly. It's a, it's a, a uh, disused rail line in Queens that could be converted to a park. You know, the Fresh Kills site out in Staten Island, which has been a, a slow burn, I use that from a project perspective, um, but there's just amazing possibilities with, with that project out there and, and infusing it with funding. Um, I'd say there's, you know, 10 to 15, maybe even more projects that are not shovel ready, but could be moved into that uh, into that category with some pressure and some vision. And I think it's really important for us to be thinking that way, especially as federal dollars are going to be coming into the states and, and looking at, you know, like I said before, the, these projects can be defined in a lot of different ways. Parks is one of them, economic development is another, equitable development is another, infrastructure 
um, just finding as many different ways to describe this work will will increase the funding for them. It's going to be a hard a hard road. Will the coronavirus pandemic impact cleanup projects, planning events, things involving volunteers? Because you can't pull together large groups of volunteers these days. That's right. I, you know, the Parks Department has its own policy on that. With that alone, yes, of course, it's going to change how we're doing that type of work through this summer. Um, I think that we'll have to get creative and look at different management strategies that allow for the social distancing that is required uh, for good reason. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable, but it, it is going to be a challenge. And you're going to see a lot of the things that we've normally done, done differently. I hope that they don't move to a category where they're not being done at all. I think we just need to pivot and come up with different strategies. I guess we could all do things on our own too, right? If you see a piece of trash or litter in a park, pick it up and throw it away. That's funny you say that. I was talking with the uh, head of Prospect Park Alliance just the other day, and we were talking about how national parks have a carry in, carry out uh, requirement. And, and that's something they're, they're uh, doing now at Prospect Park. And I think it's a great idea. You know, last time I was up there, uh, you could see the Parks employees and the Prospect Park Alliance employees picking up tremendous amounts of trash, and it's just, it's a whole different scale. So we individuals have our own responsibilities in this as well. All right, Adam, anything else that we didn't talk about that you would want to add before we let you go? No, this was really great. I really enjoyed our time, and, and thank, you for, uh, thank you for having me. Adam Ganser is the executive director of New Yorkers for Parks. More info at nypthenumeral4.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening.